like we it. should probably mention that we got nominated for an award in this oh, episode. Yeah. Yes. Twitter's blocked on all my sites, so could someone tell me more about this? Oh, okay. So yeah, I went and looked at it. It's something called it. <laughs> Canadian Comics Wiki or something, which seems to be sort of like a wiki of Canadian comics. Okay. And I guess they do a best of awards at the end of the year. And yeah, we got nominated along with couple of po- uh, other podcasts I've never heard of, so in good company. <laughs> you know. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, cool. Yeah, which is mm. d- nice just to be nominated so you can be like, hey, at least one person yeah. thought that maybe we were good enough to put on a list. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, today's episode, we are looking at A Bintel Brief by Leanna Fink. Jess, you picked this book? Yeah, I guess we can start with a character revealing question. Have you ever fallen in love with a fictional character or a historical figure? Hmm. Interesting question. I, I have an answer. So oh, okay. wow. Jeff has this <laughs> just like right in his um, back, back pocket. Well, to be fair, just... Give me a sneak peek. Before <laughs> yeah. Um, I was worried I'd asked it before. But uh, I don't think you asked this before because clearly everyone's got to think for an answer here. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say that I read Neil Gaiman's Death, the High Cost of Living uh, when I was like 13 or 14 years old. And it's about death personified as like a bubbly, like goth girl. And it's really well written. Actually, Sandman's just, I think, overall, like, pretty well, well written series. Maybe art's a little choppy. Um, but Death the High Cost of Living was drawn by Chris Piccolo, uh, who ended up becoming a pretty well known artist in his own right, uh, afterwards. But yeah, uh, I don't know, something about the personality of the character, the way the character was drawn. Uh, I definitely, uh, would say, like, young teenage Jeff had kind of a crush on this death character. And had lots of like Chris Piccolo death drawings pinned up on his on his mood boards, uh, and uh, it was actually kind of sad that like when Chris Piccolo came to Vancouver for a comic convention, he had changed his art style because he was now writing, drawing for the X Men, and I didn't like his new style as much as his original style and. When I got to meet him, I, of course, asked him to draw death, and I, he, like, visibly, like, rolled his eyes and was just kind of like, oh, like, I, I do X-Men now, I don't do death. But, like, and he still did the drawing for me, but I could tell he was really, like, I'm so done with this character. Wow. <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I don't know, it was, that's, that's my, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. All right. Mm-hmm. Alright, um, I'm Jonathan, and I don't have an interesting answer here, because I don't think I've ever fallen in love with a fictional or historical character. There are definitely people that I'm big fans of, especially from history, uh, but no, I think the answer is no. <laughs> Who are you like? Who's would you be like? I'm the biggest fan. Oh, of oh, that's history. that's hard to pick. Oh, I don't know. Um, Which one would you like to share with the class today? <laughs> <laughs> let, let me think. Uh, you might have to come back to me again. 
<laughs> That's okay. Um, I don't... I, I also don't think that I've ever fallen in love with a fictional character or a historical figure, but I'll maybe give a historical figure that I return to and like to read biographies of. I really like reading biographies of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. I think she was a really, really interesting person. And yeah, there's lots of writing out there on her because she was an obsessive diarist and so was every member of her family. So I think she's real neat to learn about. That's cool. Uh, I'm Jam, and uh, I also am going to join Team Don't Crush on Fictional Characters somehow, but a historical figure I've always been drawn to has been Mary Curie, who is the person who discovered radioactive isotopes and died for her work, because she discovered radioactive isotopes but didn't discover in time that radiation kills you. But I always thought that was somehow like romantic, like really dying for, like literally dying for your work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Very tragic. Yeah. yeah. In like the old school sense yeah. of the word, almost. I love it. It's awesome. She's a Nobel Prize winner, so yeah. Mary Curie. Nice. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your answer, Joss. I really liked Kafka, who is a real person, a historical figure. Just I just totally fell in love with his writing. Definitely had a crush on him. (laughs) Um, And that could be an interesting segue into the book we're reviewing, because Kafka had Jewish heritage, and A Bintel Brief is by a Jewish Jewish author. And um, I wrote a summary here because it's a bit of a complicated uh, premise. So A Bintel Brief is a comic adaptation of letters submitted to the advice column in The Forward, an American Yiddish newspaper by Jewish immigrants at the turn of the century. So... I wanted to talk about the author first and then get some uh, first impressions. Uh, She seems really cool. She studied fine art at Cooper College. Um, Her work has appeared in the New Yorker and Tablet Magazine. And she also lives in New York, so she has a special... I would... I don't want to assume, but I would think she has a special connection to the place because she lives there. And her recent work sounds amazing. um, And I'm definitely going to be picking this up right away. It's called Passing for Human. So paraphrased from the Guardian Bookshop summary... It's a neurological coming-of-age story about what it means to be an artist and a woman. And you can find her uh, more of her work on Instagram. It's her first and last name. So let's um, jump into first impressions about this book. Did everybody like it? What did they think? Yeah, um, I was excited to read this book because... I always, like, put off reading things for this podcast way too late, and then I complain to my friends. I'm like, I have homework, and I didn't do it yet. But I was talking to my friend Sophie, who, like, doesn't read comics, really, I don't think. And she was like, oh, Leanna Fink, I love her work. So I was like, oh, that's... I always get excited when, like, someone who doesn't read comics, really, like, has a comic or a cartoonist that they get excited about. Because I'm like, oh, there's something there that's, like, pulling people in. I guess she'd read her work in the New York Times or whatever. And then, um, like, picking up this book, I was immediately drawn in by the art. I love sort of, like, loose, sketchy inking. And then it's also, like, printed in almost this, like, faux risograph way with, like, blue ink that really has this, like, tactile analog quality to it, even though I'm sure it's assembled digitally and whatever. But just, like, aesthetically, I was like, oh... This is, like, art I can, like, chew on and, like, live in. And then, like, getting to the subject matter, I love 
advice columns. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm into this. And then framing it as sort of like a, a real fictional conversation with the ghost of an editor was really neat. So I wish I had read this more times before coming to this talk, because I think there's a lot that I'm just letting sit with myself now, and I will definitely revisit after this, because I thought it was just a really interesting piece of storytelling and sort of like way of existing in a culture, both past and present, I think, mm-hmm. is sort of how I felt about the book. So I was, I was really glad you recommended this. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this. Like, what was the best part for me was the, the history aspect of it. That because it's all based around actual letters written by actual people in an actual specific place and time, and they're not famous people, they haven't done anything that's, like, recorded in history. They're just ordinary people who happen to live in a certain place and time, and now we can actually sort of see their life story. And I really enjoy that. That's the best thing about history is to make those kind of connections like across the distance of however long it's been a uh, hundred years and however many kilometers away to, to be able to sort of live in someone's life a little bit, even for just a, a few, like even for just one chapter to sort of see the world through their eyes and sort of like, feel like this was a real person and I'm never going to know anything about them apart from like what I'm reading right now. And I think like a lot of the way history is going in terms of like historical research and stuff is, uh, is more sort of in the vein of like, forget about famous people. What, what was it like for like real ordinary people? And that this is definitely that. So I had a lot of fun sort of living in that world for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't know what I was, uh, getting into when I got this book delivered to my house and, like, cracked it open. But, like, from, like, the first page, I just got really, like, sucked in. I read this in a very short amount of time. Uh, I just couldn't put it down. And, yeah, I I really enjoyed just all of it. Yeah, I enjoyed the art. I like I like rough, rough kind of slightly unfinished art sometimes. And I think that this, this cut, cut a good uh, style in that regard. And then... Uh, yeah, just the fact that it is like kind of adapting these historical letters into comic book form. Uh, I mean, that's something I've done a little bit with some of the early Cloudscape short stories, like adapting stories from my grandfather. And so I actually have these old letters from relatives and stuff that I've always thought, think, oh, I'll turn that into a comic. I'll turn that into a comic. I haven't done that yet. And I found this very inspirational for that as well. And I, I like the the framing of this having the the sort of dramatic telling of the letter in comic form and then just the very formal typewriter response from the editor at the end of each story. And then I really also enjoyed the the kind of framing narrative of her conversations with the the ghost of the editor. And I really enjoyed like the the evolution there. Like I was very surprised at the direction that that took as well like with the ghost kind of slowly modernizing until he just like leaves her. And uh, I thought that was just really fascinating too. Like just, yeah, I think it was like a very artistic way to represent like what was just like a bunch of found letters. Just the representation was amazing. Like just some of the visual things she does in 
in the drawings that accent the mood of what's coming out in the in the written stories was just really really top-notch cartooning i thought yes i I will agree i will uh echo some of these previous statements uh i came to this work totally cold i'd never heard of it Uh, i didn't know what to expect and i had no preconceptions at all but i also read it in one sitting i was very like drawn into the work this time and place is very interesting to me like uh my heritage does flow through new york and so i always like had a very special connection to the people there and stories of migration are always very compelling to me and i think this does an excellent job of humanizing those stories and really bringing what feels like a very distant story into the present and making it very immediately relatable I also felt like the framing structure with like the ghost of the editor was, it's funny because like when you try to describe it, it sounds very strange. And I think as a framing device, it is very strange, but it never felt off-putting. It never felt like awkward to me where I was like, I'm confused. What's going on? When are we going to figure out this ghost? Like it doesn't really matter. It just felt kind of romanticized. I guess, like, I mean, he is a literally portrayed as a heart, but it, it is something that seems to speak to the affection that you can feel for your own ancestry, despite maybe feeling removed from it at the same time. And uh, I, I felt that framing device was very evocative and very poignant to me, and I liked it a lot. Yeah, I'm so glad um, people enjoyed it. I obviously really enjoyed it as well. I also was really blown away by how relatable a lot of these stories were being about 100 years old now I think that's also a testament to the storytelling Um, and I do want to ask everybody of the I believe there's 12 stories uh, which the most relatable was because some of the problems in the stories in certain cases actually still come up 100 years later yeah Um, but I was thinking I could also do a bit of a gives offer some uh, history about the context leading up to the book, because the book jumps right in, uh, 1909, but it doesn't talk about what led to the wave of immigration. About 2 million Jewish people moved to the U.S. The U.S. currently has the second largest Jewish population in the world. And I didn't really know why, specifically. So I'm not a historian, but I have like a little write-up here, if that's cool. Yeah, yeah, please. I think that's really necessary context. Yeah, yeah. So basically, one of the inciting incidents, there was multiple, but... Alexander II of Russia was assassinated, and people blamed that on the Jewish population. And just to be clear, that was not valid, but it led to um, pogroms just almost immediately. Uh, the New York Times described the first Kishinev pogrom of Easter 1903 as worse than the censor will permit to publish. So jumping forwards in time, Bintelbrief was published in 2014, and uh, Leander discovers a book of newspaper clippings that contain letters to a Yiddish advice column. So then we were talking about the the editor, the apparition of the editor appears. Um, his name's Abraham Cahan. And one of the first things he says is, I was the editor of a small socialist, socialist Yiddish newspaper called The Forward. The year is 1906. So kind of looking at what was happening back, I guess, um, maybe you'd call it the homeland or like the old country, this is sort of like where it's placed in time. And the stories we begin after that. Um, so I just got chills at that moment. So it's interesting. So my next question would be, what was uh, everyone's favorite story or like the most relatable story? 
Uh, I have an answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My favorite is the one where the couple dreams of all the things that they're going to get for their wedding. Yeah. And they all end up giving them the same thing. Was it like a lamp or something? <laughs> yeah, it's lamps yeah. and pillows. Yeah. They all had like all these lamps and pillows and I, I loved that. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And yeah. like the type of, uh, we, we talked briefly before about how the common everyday stories and how that acts as a lens to connect you to people in history. I've always felt that sometimes in the past the way history was portrayed was very proper and very kind of matter of fact and i think these visceral kind of human annoyances <laughs> tend to connect me to other people a lot more so yeah, i really this, appreciate mm-hmm. this they're, they're so relatable as opposed yeah. to like so and so assassinated so and so i was like i can't that's never something that's happened to me yeah it's like <laughs> what is it like some of the oldest written like cuneiform tablets or something where it oh, complains yeah. about yeah this guy who's freaking swindler like bad merchant or this something this is bad clay he's yeah. selling me clay with not enough copper and yeah. I need like one oh, yeah. star the, the <laughs> best the best part of that story this is a detour but anyways I don't care it's great the best part about that is they found multiple tablets all about the same guy all in the same place so I think the only conclusion we can come to is that he was saving up his mail, his hate mail, and that we have we have this now because he was keeping it. <laughs> People were sending him nasty letters about the poor quality of his copper, and he saved that for us. <laughs> um, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had uh, sort of three different parts in the book that really resonated with me or, like, really stuck with me. The opening story of The Watch... And, like, that feeling of being conflicted because somebody, you think somebody has stolen this thing from you and hurt you, but you know if you try and bring it up to them, like, it will hurt them as well. And, like, having empathy for the people who have wronged you, but still being like, but they they wronged me and... I do really want that to be acknowledged, even in it just, like, anonymously giving me back the watch. Like, I I don't know, maybe I feel like I, I felt like I've been in that position, like, more often than not over the years of just being like, oh, you hurt me and I can't speak to you about it because it will hurt you too. And, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, like, a very human and, like, painful place to be in. And, yeah, I, like, really found that story resonated and I loved the gallery of missing husbands <laughs> like that just sort of like almost intermission in the book of just looking at this portraiture of these like men who had deserted their families like that was really odd because it's sort of like this heartbreaking story behind it but also like I don't know like a portrait is very personal too and you can like project so many things onto it especially if you don't like read the language that's giving you the story Um, And then I also really liked the story about the guy who was, like, doing the religious, like, Mm. um, speaking, preaching, or whatever. Um, Was it singing? Singing, yeah, yeah. And sort of, like, him falling out of his belief with God and trying to reconcile that. And I think that's something that, like, still, like, so many people grapple with. And, yeah, just, like, having friends from, like, more religious backgrounds, like, grow up and sort of, like, struggling to find where they fit within their, like, religious culture. Because it, like, is a culture beyond just, like, believing in God. So I found that story, like, really, really poignant. And, like, yeah, really, like, 
resonated with me, I guess, in a certain mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't just pick one, but <laughs> that's okay. It's, yeah. yeah, it's hard to pick. Yeah. Like I think I'm gonna have to pick maybe the least relatable of them, but I really enjoyed it. There's one where there's a, a barber who has a dream that he cuts George Washington's head off, <laughs> uh, and like obviously this is like just a weird, surreal story because it's a dream, but. I don't know. I just, it's, it seems almost more interesting to sort of dive even deeper, to not just dive to the level of this was someone's actual life, but this was someone's dream about their life. Cause that's like such a strange and intimate thing to sort of know what someone was dreaming about. I don't know. Uh, and I love, sorry, Jeff, I love that the way that he, the only way he could exercise the amount of struggle he was having about this dream was to write a letter to the editor, and I just, I love that aspect yeah. of it. Well, I was, I was going to say, like, I feel like that even overlooks, like, the other aspect of that, which is that he has this dream, and then he finds that he's afraid every time he's shaving someone, because his job is a barber, and so every time he's using a razor, a straight razor to shave someone, because that's the style of the time that he's like afraid he's going to kill them because he had this dream and he just is like well what if what if i do it what if i you know and it's and the editor's just like you know what you don't want to kill someone so just don't think about it like you know, your life. And, and it's like really good advice but i i just like i i think that's what i found like the most relatable is that is that idea of like you know you have a a bad thought in your head and then you're like, oh, does that mean I'm bad? And it, and it's like, well, don't dwell on it. It's fine. Like, everyone has bad thoughts. Everyone mm-hmm. has bad dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, just move on with your life. And, and it's like that, I think, was like such a human moment there. Yeah. yeah. I felt I felt really bad for that guy because we have a word for that now. And I don't know if they did back then. Um, intrusive thoughts. Mm. So... You know, one example I've heard is when you stand at the edge of a cliff, a lot of people think of jumping off, not because they're, they want to, it's just it intrusively enters your mind, or uh, mm-hmm. you're carrying a big stack of plates, and you imagine just dropping them all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> Sorry, continue. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, it's totally normal, but I don't know if people back then could say, don't worry, you're just having intrusive thoughts. Like, mm-hmm. whenever I see somebody in a movie, like, shaving somebody, I, it always crosses my mind. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You just can't help it. What were you going to say, though? Oh, I was going to say that uh, I always tend to have nightmares of, like, the worst thing that could possibly happen the next day. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I am going on a flight the next day, I will dream that I've woken up and my flight has departed and then I wake up at four in the morning and I don't leave until six and I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I dream that I've slept through the exam. I dream that, you know, like yeah. I screwed up the interview, you know, like <laughs> that's the way it always tends to work for me. Yeah. I, um, I think like that, that story stood out to me, but the, maybe the one that I, all, the one I will, that I will cite is the detective. Which is the guy who worked oh. as a um, like an undercover police detective? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he realized that he was being sent in to uh, check if this like small businessman was selling wine and without a license, and that if they were selling alcohol without a license, he would report them and have this guy arrested. But he realized that this guy was dirt poor and was only selling alcohol because he was just trying to survive. And so then he reported back that. No, like, the guy wasn't selling alcohol, 
Um, but then someone had it in for him, and so they p- dragged him back in to check again, and so then he, like, told the guy, like, you don't sell me alcohol, buddy, wink, wink, and the guy, like, picked up on the cl- clues, but it's like, then he wrote back to the editor, like, is it moral for me to be in this job where I'm, like, trying to oppress, like, poor people? Because it seems like as a detective, that's all I'm doing. And the editor's like, yeah, you need to get out of that terrible, terrible job. And <laughs> I know, I, I like that even back in 1910, there's this conversation about, like, what is a police force really here for? Is it really here to keep law and order for everyone? Or is it really just law and order for some people and keeping other people in their place, you know? And, and just that the editor is so immediately like, yeah, no, don't be a police officer. It's terrible. Uh, I just, <laughs> yeah. I like that even in 1910, there's that kind of a conversation happening. Yeah, but like, can we, can we speak for a moment about the editor as a character? <laughs> like, I, I feel like the advice they give is really good. Mm. Like, it's, it's really on the level and, uh, yeah, kind of transcends time. Like, uh, what resonated with me is this story of the woman who went back to the old country and then fell in love but then all the people are like oh this guy is old-fashioned and the editor is very level-headed and it's like your friends are jerks <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah don't think about what your friends say they sound dumb yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's uh-huh. this concern that she married this like country bumpkin yeah. who's unrefined and they were all city people but he was a really good guy so she said don't you know don't let your friends affect your um opinion of him uh, yeah, I was curious, actually, that was another question I was going to ask, if people found that the advice was good. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think, I would say it was, especially for the resources they had at the time. Like, with the barber, I think he did say that it was, as long as you aren't um, kind of weakened or distracted, you won't slit the person's throat. Kind of implying that if the barber was tired or distracted, he might commit a crime. And I don't think that's the case with intrusive thoughts. They're pretty much completely meaningless um it's it's not an implication that someone is gonna secretly a killer but i i don't you know given what they had like their understanding of psychology a hundred years ago like i think the advice is really good yeah Yeah. it actually made me think a lot about the concept of wisdom Mm -hmm. and how we tend to think that oh because we have all this technology and all this information access that we have better answers but i think that I find myself turning quite often to wisdom that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. That though they didn't have the scientific backing to necessarily explain where this wisdom comes from, like the wisdom of a long time ago is still quite sound in a lot of cases, obviously, and not in all cases. But (laughs) uh, yeah, there there is such a thing as wisdom, which Mm -hmm. you can turn to for eons. Yeah, yeah. I think that comes back to people are basically the same throughout all of history so if you have spent a lot of time around people and paying attention to people and trying to solve their problems you accumulate knowledge you accumulate wisdom and you can share that with other people and that would be true at any time yeah yeah no there's there's a lot of good moments in there like the other one i was thinking of was the um the man writing about uh, looking into adopting a child that was born out of wedlock and then how him and his wife are not sure if they should take this child in because what if the mother were to come back and like want the child in the future and it wouldn't really be theirs. And like, you know, uh, and I love the way it was represented too, because it has the husband and wife sitting further and further on the couch and you kind of get the sense of like the, the atmosphere that was maybe in the home while they're 
they, they're failing to conceive their own child and now they're talking about adoption. Like just the artistic representation of that story was really well done. But then you know, the, the editor's response at the end is like, well, you should just adopt that kid right now. Like, <laughs> don't delay. Yeah. Go and take care of this. Yeah, you don't know what's going to happen, <laughs> so just do what seems best right now. Yeah. yeah. Didn't he say, like, these things shouldn't be thought about for very long? Yeah. Which is such a funny thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> just dive right in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, it seems like you want a kid. Go adopt this kid. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like the, the real talk advice that you, like, go to your friend who isn't going to bullshit you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I need to... I, I need help on this, and you know that they're not going to, like, just <laughs> be like, oh, no, I'm sure things will work out. It'll be fine. It's like, no, here's what you do. Like, don't worry about that. It's fine. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. I also really liked the part, and this is obviously, this part is, is fiction, where uh, the ghost is following her around and sort of, like, it's sort of her seeing the world through his eyes. Uh, and that's something that I've definitely, like, from time to time I'll think about. Like, what would, how would someone from a, this other period of history view the present as I'm seeing it now? Like, what would that be like? What would their experience be? So as someone who's read a lot of history, that that part was very relatable to sort of like tr- do that sort of mental process of trying to see the world through someone else's eyes. Yeah. Uh, and I like that he kind of, he adapts so well to the present and basically becomes a hipster. Because <laughs> it fits so well with what we know about this person. Like, he was a real person. He was an immigrant to New York. And, like, if you read his writing that, that we have here, it feels like he is doing his best to sort of adapt to a new situation. And so in the story, he's the, his ghost is kind of doing that again, adapting to a brand new situation and doing a pretty good job of fitting in. I also felt like that sort of, like, side side thread or whatever sort of spoke to the way that the advice that he was giving and the stories that were being told in the letters like at first it might seem like oh this is from 1909 or whatever how could this possibly relate to me today in 2018 but then as you get deeper and deeper like you kind of realize that it does relate to modern day more and more Mm -hmm. so i like i felt like that was sort of like paralleling Mm -hmm. those two things together i don't know I also want to just shout out that they did a recipe comic because I love recipe comics. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, I may have to make this recipe at some point. I was curious. Yeah, I like reading it. I was like, oh, I can eat that. It doesn't have meat in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I thought it was interesting too the uh, the placement of that because that was right when so I keep forgetting the name. The editor is starting to kind of modernize, and so then she makes this like classical like whatever this historical dish the soup that they made in 1910 and serves it to him and she says like it has the desired effect and he's shedding like a a solitary tear at the (laughs) nostalgia of of having this soup that he hasn't had since 1910 and uh, I don't know I, I enjoyed that just like that was her effort to try and kind of hang on to him a little bit longer, keep him maybe a little more grounded in 1910 before he completely transitions into 2018. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a different uh, understanding of that character. I The read that I got from the editor was that his transition into modern times was almost like a loss of connection to culture. Although, hmm. like, uh, 
the character in the work, um, the modern day character, although she seems to be getting closer to the people who are from this other era, it's actually an act that she's trying to take in order to reconnect with her heritage, which the impression that I get is that it's something that she feels is slipping away mm. over the course of time. And uh, the metamorphosis of the editor seems to parallel that kind of slipping mm. away mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, disappears completely. Right. Oh, it's mm-hmm. a really interesting read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a line that I read that really stuck with me where he's, his name is Abe, where Abe is talking about his job of being this advice columnist is basically making himself obsolete, where if he is successful at his job, he will succeed in helping all these new immigrants adapt to American society, and then they won't need him anymore. (laughs) Well, there was also a really poignant kind of comment on the fact that the newspaper is in Yiddish, right? Yeah. And how, like, again, if his job is done, there shouldn't be a newspaper in Yiddish. They should all assimilate into English, which is another kind of poignant mm. thing of, like, losing the root culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the same kind of shock that Abe gets when he opens up her fridge and is like, oh, where's the, where's the salted fish? <laughs> I have a... Uh... A section called Hard Questions. Okay. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, I didn't know there'd be a test. This is a test. <laughs> and you will fail. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no. Oh. Um, but um, we've been talking a bit about the fictional parts of this work. Liana's relationship with Abraham, or Abe, who is uh, an apparition. And later in the book, Abe reveals some of the letters are made up. Do you believe this is true? And if some of the letters in Bintel are fictional, like does it change the value of the work in any way? I'm going to say I don't think it does because the one, like we have no way of knowing which ones might be fictional and the artist has no way of knowing which ones might be fictional. And the author of the fictional letters is still very aware of his own culture and setting. So even if they're not a real thing that happened, they are informed by reality. Mm -hmm. So at least from my vantage point, in uh, which is quite distant from the original letters, uh, they are still spoken from a point of view that is much closer to that truth and therefore... Might as well be true, as far as I'm concerned. I agree 100% with that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I well, mean, I think my take on it would be, if any of them were obviously fiction, you would be able to tell. And since you can't, I think that's a testament to how well written the the not real letters were. And then, it, yeah, it still gives you the same experience. Like, you're still... Feeling like you're connecting to a human story, whether it was made up or not. Well, even more so than that, if they were fake and you could tell, the people of the time would have been able to tell. Oh, right. for sure. <laughs> and yeah. so since they were written in order to fool his contemporaries, <laughs> not maliciously, but like in order to say like, this is, it's being presented as fact to an audience that would be able to tell whether or not it was like outlandish. Yeah. Like I would say, I would put it in the same category as... Odysseus. Like, we don't know if Odysseus was a real person or not. He might be entirely made up by various Greek authors and then written down by Homer. There might have been a real person at the core of those legends. 
but the point of view of Homer and the authors that came before him is still shines a light on something that we can't otherwise see. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, um, like pleasantly surprised and like interested in, in the answer. I thought the answer would probably be like, Oh, it would change. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that people are like, no, it's okay. Do you all remember that part in the story? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to, I was looking for it. I was, I was thinking of quoting it specifically. I think we can go to the next question if we mm-hmm. want to keep going mm-hmm. with the... These hardball. These <laughs> throwing you. Did we pass the first one? Well, I was joking. <laughs> you cannot... What's my score? You can't pass or fail. Your score is yes. <laughs> you get a key. I like yeah. the key to unlock a box that has the next question in it. Okay. Yeah. I like the way you're, you mark these. Every... Oh, it, it's a... Uh... It's who wants to be a millionaire rules. <laughs> yes. We get to go to the next round. <laughs> yeah, so here's the next round of the hard hidden questions. <laughs> like to phone a friend. It's not allowed. <laughs> not allowed. Um, so the next question, because I, I was like thinking a lot about this book and I read it a couple times and like really wanted to dive in because I think it has a lot of meaning. So my next question was, is there any significant difference between our connection to a historical figure that was real versus our connection to a fictional character. And you brought up myths, which are kind of walking that line. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lead up to this was, you know, is the relationship bond or love you feel towards a fictional being functionally different than the, the relationship bond or love you feel towards a person that passed away like over a hundred years ago? And I think it's kind of interesting the way the author handled her relationship with the editor because he was a real person, but I assume his him as this apparition is fictional, so it's almost like this mix. And I don't know how much, many of his words are based in his book or quotes, or if they're what she imagines he would say, so... Yeah, I mean, I think there's, think? like, any act of trying to, like, understand or construct a historical figure, you're fictionalizing them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, just by... You have to make so many assumptions... I think so. I think it's it's similar. I don't know, but I also am like one of those people who's like, I don't know, does truth even exist? <laughs> yeah, it is a in bit of storytelling. Like, <laughs> it's a bit of a like a what is reality question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do feel though that there is a difference. I mean, maybe it's a sliding scale rather than mm-hmm. an either or, but I feel like knowing that the that at least some of these letters are real letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives them sort of an extra aspect that they wouldn't have if I knew that it was entirely fictional. Because uh, then I, I think I would read it differently. I think there's something to be said about like coming to a work thinking that it's quote unquote real versus knowing that it's fiction, and like the way that you receive that work is definitely different. Mm. Like total sidebar, and we've probably talked about this before, but it's a good life if you don't weaken by Seth was presented as a true narrative and when readers found out that it was completely fabricated they got really upset because <laughs> it's presented as an autobiographical comic where like Seth goes on this journey to find this little known cartoonist in like Strathroy Ontario or something and yeah there was like readers were very upset when they found out that it was fake yeah I there's a that. number of examples like that yeah. like a, a thousand little pieces or something oh yeah, yeah. 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 book that was Which... written by some kind of i didn't even know oh yeah yeah it was written by some 
supposed addict about their recovery or something, and it was Oprah's pick of the week, and everyone fell in love with this book until it was revealed yeah. that it was a total fabrication. And yeah, there was a huge backlash mm. against that as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but for some reason I am totally more lenient when it comes to comics. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> Cartoon works. You have to fictionalize everything when you're making a comic because you're drawing your particular point of view and representation of something and fudging it to make it a compelling narrative. Not only that, like I was working on a comic earlier today where I like had my draft of what I wanted to say and I had to cut it down like 50% just to get it to fit in the panel. Uh And then I was like, in order to get it to fit, I just completely changed what I was going to say. You know, like Mm. things like Mm. that happen all the time when you're Mm. trying to represent something as comics. So yeah, I agree with you. I'm more forgiving of comics in their representation as fact. But I will say that knowing it, whether or not it is fact-based or whether or not that is a person who has lived makes a huge difference to me. Mm. I don't, I can't put my finger on why, but it makes a huge difference to me. Yeah, and there's definitely no correct answer for this. It's more of like, how do you feel about it? Um, mm-hmm. The examples that both of us did are really great examples. Um, it's interesting, though, because those are like in the moment, modern, they're modern examples. But thinking about things from the past, like um, Kay said, like when it's history, it's already kind of like a reconstruction. Like it's already, there's like a degree, I don't want to say like a falseness, but fictionalization maybe. Mm-hmm. You so turn it, it into a, little, a story. It gets a little yeah. blurred, maybe, because... when, it's, when it's a really old document, like a hundred years old. Yeah. I think it's it looser. Reality is kind of more boring than can fly in any kind of fictional construction. <laughs> and so in order to fictionalize anything to make it a suitable story. Like, if you think about, oh my god, have you ever had one of those stories that someone was telling you where the end is like, well, I guess you really had to be there. And it's like, you know, you start with the story <laughs> and it's like, and then I had to go to the grocery store because, you know, I needed another orange. And like, it just takes forever when you're trading mm-hmm. someone who can't tell a story. You know what I mean? Like, that's mm-hmm. what reality is like. Yeah. <laughs> or like, people who don't actually know how to be funny and they just tell like the most basic boring anecdote that is like I went to the grocery store today and they like pause for punch line and you're like that wasn't a joke <laughs> like good share I don't know what you think was funny about that but okay yeah I find I find myself thinking a lot about the uh, Louis Real episode we did and I found it interesting looking at the footnotes in the back of that work where it was Chester Brown talking about the liberties he took with with history. We're like, here's what factually happened, but instead I did this and this and this. And like quite often the things he was doing was just to like streamline because actual authentic history is clunky and there's lots of standing around and things are not timed very well. So it's just got all these big, long, boring pauses. And so he essentially just trimmed that all out and like, here's the important stuff that happened and we'll just like flow from event to event. So it feels like a fluid narrative. And I sort of think that that was maybe the beauty of this work was taking these, these letters, which maybe some were fabricated, some were real, but using them as kind of like a backbone to like build out these like more emotional stories. Because I mean, I would say that like the, the, um, the artist, Leanna Fink is, she's manipulating the narrative, right? I mean, for better or for worse, like when she's telling the story of the the couple trying to have, you know, children, it's like the husband is in white and the wife is in black at a certain point and the space between them on the couch gets bigger and then the couch eats them. And 
it's putting an emotional spin on what we're reading. Like, uh, the same way that Chester Brown was removing all the facial expressions from his characters, trying to take all the emotion out of his drawings because he didn't want to come off as picking sides. Well, I mean, Leanna Fink is kind of doing, I mean, whether he was successful in that or not. It's just like, I sorry, feel like... Every storyteller has their bias. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm not saying he su- no, succeeded. No, no, I get what you're but, saying, but, yeah, but I um, just... Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, maybe I would say that Leanna Fink embraces that she is bringing her bias to these stories, and I think that makes the stories actually more interesting because it's taking she's sort of taking her own little spin on what she's read so we're kind of getting the author's impressions from what they read from these letters and i know i i I actually feel like this is sort of mythologizing these letters and mythologizing the character of the editor that um if the bintel brief was just a collection of letters in a binder somewhere it wouldn't have the same impact as it has here where it's now been collected into this like artistic retelling of selected letters. So maybe some of the letters weren't very interesting. We got the 12 interesting ones that are now artistically represented and has this additional kind of narrative that talks about maybe connection to culture and, you know, has these other, other layers that have been added to it. And, and it's, um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of think about, like, you talk about historical, but I feel like maybe this is almost pushing it to, like, mythological, that it's sort of making it more timeless. Yeah, and we've touched on this a few times, and I'm starting to wonder whether myths are, I don't want to say more useful, but they have a different application, right? You know, like, if this had, as you said, like, they were just a collection of letters in a binder, they probably would have stayed in the binder, mm-hmm. right? And now by mythologizing them a little bit, were able to broaden their application, broaden their relatability, uh, open the access to more people, does that not make it more useful than the source on its own? Mm-hmm. Right? right? You know, it's yeah. like the source still exists. And if anyone wants to drill down to the minutia of the real history, that history should be preserved. It shouldn't be destroyed. But mythologizing is an interesting way to improve access to the narrative, I think. Yeah, I think like that's maybe why mythology exists in the first place is if you're in a culture that doesn't have a way of writing stuff down to remember it, like your history needs to be memorable or people won't remember it. You need to make it as memorable as possible to ensure that it survives. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Can we talk about the art a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I just want to say I love that each story is told with a different drawing style. And I don't know what the inspiration for each drawing style was necessarily, but one of them I am convinced is inspired by a um, woodblock print artist from Germany in about the same time period. Uh, I should have written her name down. Uh, Kathy Collitz, I think is her name. Uh, but I recognized that style and said, aha, I know where, what you're doing here. And it was a really good connection that for me at least like added to the story yeah i love i just love the the variations in style and i also love that it's just so simple with just black and white and blue and i don't i always love uh, a duotone atomic palette a limited color palette is so effective yeah um for setting tone and just it just looks good Mm -hmm. yeah and those colors have Special significance in Judaism. Um, oh yeah, I okay. didn't even think of that. Yes, I actually went on a pretty good research hole 
trying to figure out why. I don't know if I'll go through the whole process, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's effective. I, uh, I I picked this work, so obviously, like, I I really love it. But I I think there are moments of struggle in it artistically, like maybe just like as the comics medium. Like sometimes I found some of the paneling was a little confusing, and it did look like uh, certain parts in the story there was like maybe some digital editing. Did anyone else pick up on that, or was that no? I didn't, but I will agree that this felt like someone who didn't have a lot of experience in comics in the sense of like the pagination and pacing of a comic. Hmm. But that could be it could come down to style. It didn't I didn't find it too disruptive. That's just the read that I got on it. Yeah. I only had um some like really small hiccups and um I looked at this artist's newer work and I think she just like her stuff is looking awesome. Yeah. I think this is a, like a bit of an earlier work. It is four years old now. Yeah, and um, she's quite young. So yeah, and and uh, yeah, I think overall, really great. That's just the only thing I would say. Just like some of the paneling, like the order, I got like, oh, which which is the next panel? And I feel like I noticed some like digital edits, um, that that just stood out a little tiny bit. But overall, yeah, really really cool and really effective. I guess the classic question is, would you recommend? Uh, yes, I would recommend. Uh, I think it's a great, great read. I think this is, uh, I think maybe one of my favorite books I've read this year. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this book quite a bit. It's December of 2018, so <laughs> this is like the most books that you could possibly read in one yeah. year. No, we <laughs> have to be close. It's not like January 2nd, and no. you're like, this is the best book. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, no, this, is, this one stood out to me. This is, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, mm-hmm. Jess. Oh, yeah. sweet. Yeah, yeah uh, I think I'd recommend it. Short answer. Yeah, I also would recommend it. I think anyone who's interested in storytelling yeah. <laughs> should just read it. Yeah. It's a really interestingly constructed comic. I will agree. I think it's a very accessible and something that's suitable to a broad recommendation. Uh, especially, it's one of those rare comics where I think it might be a suitable recommendation to someone who's not into comics. Mm. Someone who's like not deeply invested in the medium, but just wants like an interesting perspective into another culture. I think that's it's a really great book. Yeah. Yeah, um, maybe on the final note, just talking about the relatability, um, there's a quote at the back, an author's note, just one of the sentences is that the letters um, Kayan received from his readers were full of the kind of raw desperation and hopefulness we all feel under everything. They are timeless and all is bold and underlined. So I think that, yeah, it's definitely meant to be this comic specifically like for everyone to enjoy. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, I'm Jan. Don't worry about it. Uh, if you liked this work, I really would recommend uh, another interesting perspective on life in New York, which is Will Eisner's New York Life in the Big City. I'm Kay Gross, and you can find my work at kagcomix.com. I am reading, this is sort of like a soft recommendation, I'm reading well, Which Lie Did I Tell by William Golding. Uh, who wrote The Princess Bride? Uh, Goldman? I don't know. Goldman. Goldman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote The Princess Bride, and this is a book that talks about, like, a period in... Because he wrote, like, a million movies, and it's about the process of writing each movie and each screenplay and each book. So it's just kind of, like, an interesting look into the process of writing. Cool. All right. 
Okay, uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find my comics at phobos-comic.com. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly when this episode is going to air, but I think it will line up with Cloudscape's new Kickstarter for Chicken Soup and Goji Berries by Janice Leo and Naomi Tsui. So uh, if that timeline matches up, I'm going to put a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes so that you can get this great book that is a bilingual comic about immigration. Wow. Yeah. That's Perfect. Awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So very topical. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. You should definitely pre-order that book. Uh, so my name's Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at eastvancomic.com. And uh, I'm going to shout out a weird little comic I picked up when I was in Amsterdam at the Van Gogh Museum. And it is a comic retelling of the life of Vincent Van Gogh, simply called Vincent, by a cartoonist named Barbara Stoke. Uh, I think she is Dutch, and her work was translated into English, and I enjoyed it a lot. My name's Jess, and um, I would shout out a show that I watched uh, called Maniac. Has anyone here Ooh, seen that on yeah. Netflix? Yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's on Netflix. Please check it out. It's really unique, really interesting storytelling. What's our next book going to be? Oh, why our next book is going to be Batwoman Elegy by Greg Rucka and J.H. Williams III. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to Cloudscape for letting us record in the house and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.